Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. While everyone in the EIS market is doing something a little bit different, today's guest is genuinely unique. Syndicate Room take a quantitative approach and go for radical portfolio diversification. We talk about how the latter developed over time and what the data says about our market and how you should invest. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? I'm grand today. How are you? Good. Probably like everybody. <laughs> Wondering when it's all going to be over, but... Uh... We won't go down that path. So No, there's a whole different podcast on that topic. So we'd like to start as usual by finding a bit more about you. So can you please tell us how you became an EIS fund manager? Yeah, I was having a chat the other day about my life with an old friend. And um, I've fallen into a lot of things you know, by good fortune or, or not. So I, I grew up in Los Angeles. My dad, uh, being from Edinburgh, we used to spend our summers uh, in Scotland uh, with my grand and grandpa, and and I loved it here. So when I got done with my undergraduate studies, I moved over with the thought of trying to make it as a professional footballer, and that that went okay. <laughs> I played for a few years in the in the lower league. So I played with Berwick Rangers and then um, Newton Grange uh, Star. I um, had a really good time doing that, but obviously there's there's not a lot of money in it. So um, not that level. No, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, only a few people actually make make enough money to kind of retire from in football anywhere, to be honest. I was on very, very little. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, so I took up a job doing um, product development at The Trainline, so trainline.com, um, back in 2006. I've always been kind of a, a tech fan and, and really enjoyed doing that. And after a few years in the lovely Scottish weather, I decided I wanted to go somewhere a little bit sunnier uh, during the Christmas period. <laughs> and I moved to London where their headquarters was. I spent a few years in London and helped launch their mobile apps. The long story short, I got into the company early but didn't have any equity in it. And they were looking to sell it. And, and I effectively wouldn't have got anything out of it. And I thought, you know what, that's a shame. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. Being American... Uh, I thought, you know, I've got to have an MBA to start my own business. So I um, ended up going going to Cambridge, got my MBA. And while I was there, I met the guy, Gonzalo, um, who was my co-founder for Syndicate Room. And Syndicate Room initially was, you know, his idea. And it was it was effectively letting more people get into angel investing in venture capital by allowing them to co-invest with, with angels and and smarter individuals. So the idea was pretty simple. We would source deals from angels. We would review them, create pitches for them. And in a similar vein to crowdfunding, we mm-hmm. would let people co-invest into those deals with the angels. Yeah. We had a thousand pound minimum for any investor to come into the round. And for that, that was that was pretty pretty crucial. And one of the big differentiators between us and say a crowdcube or seeders, we understood the risks involved at this level. And we wanted to put that barrier in so that people that couldn't afford to lose that amount, wouldn't lose it. Because if you look at you know the stats on angel investing and crowdfunding, most of the startups that get investment ultimately go bust or don't mm-hmm. return anything to investors. 
So we said, okay, it's going to be a thousand pound minimum. We're going to create this investor academy, which we launched a long time ago and harped on about creating portfolios and doing due diligence and, and all those those good things that Rob Murray Brown, who he, you interviewed mm-hmm. you know, a little while ago, was talking about. Yeah, this is what needs to happen. Yeah. And if I can continue with it, just to evolve to this fun, you know, the, the crowdfunding thing went all right. We had some success with it in terms of getting people onto the platform and investing into companies. But what we were noticing was that a lot of people weren't heeding the suggestion of build a portfolio, do lengthy due diligence. And mm-hmm. what we found was that no matter how hard we tried, ultimately you'd have people that really believed in one company, that company would go bust that person would lose the money uh, minus the EIS relief in that company. And, but they would kind of come and come back to you and be like, this company went bust. You let me invest in it. You know, it's, it's almost your fault. <laughs> and, you know, as a, as a platform manager, even though you've got successes and failures, whenever you see someone uh, ignoring the advice and putting money into just one company or two, and invariably both went bust, mm-hmm. you, you feel bad, like, because you're, allowing them to do that. Like you can tell them as much as you want, you can set a high barrier, but they're not listening when they get the choice of picking companies. And and so we kind of sat back and looked at it and said like, well, what more can we do to kind of avoid that situation where someone just lumps everything into one? And so we started a fund and it was initially called Fund 28. We tried to do a minimum of 28 investments, a diversification. And we launched that alongside the platform. So we had the platform and the fund, the passive fund. And then fast forward a few years after doing that, we realized that actually there were a lot of companies this time saying, look, we'd love to take money from the fund, but we don't want to go on a platform because mm-hmm. it takes too long. We don't want to deal with so many underlying investors, you know, for a number of reasons, the potential public exposure of what they're doing and, and the nature of the round. And so come to kind of 2018, we had investors who had an option to go into a fund or direct and some were still going direct and we had companies who said we only want a fund we wouldn't go on the platform and we said look let's just focus on the fund and and wind the platform down and so long story short <laughs> i kind of kind of fell into it along the way mm-hmm. uh, but we listened to people on both sides of the platform you know the, what the investors wanted and needed what the companies wanted and needed and ultimately we've transitioned from this platform to a platform and a fund to now just this this data-driven EIS fund. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's been an interesting journey because I've had various conversations with you over the years. And it's clear that, as you mentioned, your thoughts have been evolving and changing over time. And I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about diversification in particular and how your thoughts on diversification have evolved over time. Because you referred back to the syndicate room crowdfunding things about people just not really diversifying and and how well do you think diversification is understood in the market yeah i i think in the broader financial markets it's well understood and you see that with the success of etfs you know tracker funds and yeah um, even vct yeah vcts and and a typical venture capital fund but in in this angel market in this environment where people get a bit of a thrill, if you will, like there's risk involved in it, but you could be on to the next Facebook or the next, you know, whatever superstar company. You get people who start to think that they can beat the market and that, oh, they they have some sort of asymmetric inter- information, which means they can pick that one company that's going to do really well. Unfortunately, that's not the case. They, they can't do it. So really, they'd be better off 
going into a fund or or taking it upon themselves to create a large portfolio with with our fund 28 so the the evolution of the thinking on diversification going back to the platform we started this academy academy and we harped on about diversification diversification and when we were young people and they still talk about it in a portfolio of 10 an angel can expect six to go bust mm-hmm. six or seven to go bust one or two to kind of pay back maybe a little bit more than what you invested in it and one home run. Mm-hmm. You, know, you kind of get that drilled into you. I don't know that many angels that actually have a portfolio of just 10. That number is not only do 10. That number is out of 10. <laughs> this is what you're likely you might get. But really, you have to go much beyond that 10 to start getting the diversification you need and the chance of getting one really good success. So mm-hmm. we went from that kind of you know, do 10, like all the angels say, to fund 28. Um, and 28's a, a key number because at that stage, in theory, you have enough spread to get one really true home run. We had this discussion about statistics. And yeah. while I, I think if I'm being nitpicky as someone who's got background statistics, they were a bit flaky in terms of that exact number. The principle is really pretty good. Yeah. And, and you're right, like the numbers themselves are contestable, but it's more applied to on public markets um, than private markets. Someone, mm-hmm. I forget who it was, then applied it to private markets and tried to say, look, it, it stacks up here where, you know, 28 is, you know, you want to get at least 28 and go above that. But not we were unhappy with that number. What we wanted to do was do our own data, our own research. And mm-hmm. um, so we spent the last kind of two years, if you will, getting data out of companies house. So companies also have an API, mm-hmm. um, and, and we've also triaged or uh, referenced uh, this data with Bohurst, um, mm-hmm. which is, as you know, a good resource of, of data on private market companies. We took, I want to say all of the data out of companies house, but all of the private market data out of companies house for companies that had raised funding rounds, then pieced the market back together. We were able to go back to 2011, some data from 2010, but 2011 being where the data in Companies House is starts to become coherent and readable, but also um, structured in a similar way for each company. Mm-hmm. And then we started to rebuild this market. And then we tracked that market over time using the data again from Companies House and updating it as we went. And, and we started to see a few patterns um, in that data. And, and one of them was around this concept of diversification and where true diversification in the UK startup scale-up market lies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that number and what the fund is now based on is getting um, 50 investments, a minimum of 50 investments per 12-month cycle um, into the fund. And that's that's very specific to the stage at which we go in. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're coming in in kind of late seed. So companies raising 400K up to kind of smallish series a so about two and a half million at the upper end and applying this data to companies raising those amounts so i mean there's there's quite a few more things that came out of the data that i'm sure you'll (laughs) pry into later on yeah so So, so in terms of this 50 do you have an idea of the sort of you you mentioned about this sort of when you had 10 you get one winner with 50. Do you have some sort of idea of what the expected return profile is going by historic data? Yeah, I do. <laughs> so let, let's start with the whole of the market, right? And when I say whole of the market, we're looking at companies raising kind of a, a minimum of 100K to enter the index. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they've raised a smaller amount, we're not tracking them until that point in time where they, they raise a, 
a proper seed round. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you go back to 2011, you're talking about just shy of 700 companies. So it was like 670 companies that raised at least that seed round, uh, size seed round. And tracking those companies over time, if you had invested 10,000 pounds into every single one of those companies, which you know would be impossible, but theoretically, if you mm-hmm. had, you would have seen roughly 28% year-on-year portfolio growth up until the end of 2019. So we're updating the data now for 2020. But as you know, reporting in Companies House is often delayed a little bit. Yeah, they've added to that for coronavirus, giving people a bit more time, which probably isn't helping. Yeah. But I mean, it's 28% year on year. Now, that doesn't mean that the first year your portfolio has grown 28% because these companies take time to grow. And and there's also a strong unrealized element in that, I think, isn't there? Well, if you look at the cash return, it's 19% year on year. Now, this is roughly, well, yeah, at the the end of of, of 2019, this would have been a a nine-year portfolio, roughly nine years. Mm -hmm. So 19% year on year on cash is, is quite good with quite a bit still unrealized. So about a third of it unrealized. But I think most people would take that 19%, you know, if they I could get it. Um, and that does not include the EIS relief. So mm-hmm. it's based off of the full investment into those companies as opposed to the minus 30% upfront. Mm-hmm. Continuing with that though, we applied that same methodology to 2012, 2013, 2014. And, and there was a fairly similar trend. So if you looked at the 2012 portfolio, it's grown at around 25% year on year, mm-hmm. lower cash as well than the 19%, but still stable. Now that portfolio has one less year to mature. So that makes up for the difference. Um, 2013, again, it's about two to 3% less than 2012. 2014, again, two to 3% less than 2000. 13 <laughs> and, it got, and less cash though in that portfolio because it's had less time to mature but it's a fairly consistent trend so so that reduction in annualized rates return what would you suggest would explain that yeah it's it's about the exit for the companies and that one more year to mature so 2011 again 2011 2012 one less year to mature get exits raise further rounds and you know, one really solid exit or solid up round for, for a paper company in year six, seven, eight changes the whole dynamic of the portfolio. It pulls it up again. So these are averages, right? They're very skewed. It's just kind of like the pre two idea in extreme where that 80% of the return comes from 20% investment. In actual fact, it's, it's, it's like 90% actually comes from 5% or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you looked at taking out 28% growth, right, as a whole average, Mm -hmm. if you took out the top 10% of that in terms of the deals in growth and exit value, um, you're looking more at like 15% average growth, which is still solid, but, you know, it's half Mm-hmm. taking out just the top 10% of the deals. Yeah, I remember looking at Cedar's data a couple of years ago, and I think it was Revolut kind of dominated the return. And if you'd invest in Revolut, you did really well. And if you took out Revolut, the rest of the portfolio kind of was around breaking even. If you included EIS. You know, it's, <laughs> um, no, no, I mean, that. yes, it's, it's unfortunate that's the way it is, but... There it is. And that's the truth of the market. You you need to be able to get access to at least some of those top deals or you're going to get sub-market returns. 
Yeah. And in terms of, there's two ways I want to go here at the moment. Sure. So um, one, you mentioned about getting access to those deals. How well spread do you think that you, these deals are in terms of, is this something where there's a concentration of people who are getting them or are these just spread throughout the market? Yeah. Um, for the majority of them, it, it's concentrated amongst a group of, we'll call them super connectors, super angels, if you will. Mm-hmm. So when we were picking apart the data and putting the index together, we were also looking at individual portfolios and who was consistently beating the market. So who was mm-hmm. getting the access to the deals. And so far, we've identified about 150 angel investors who are seeing at the bottom end, but about 30% year-on-year growth. At the top end, hundreds, <laughs> in some cases, percent. Mm-hmm. And what we found, if you did a, a network diagram of the angels and the companies, so the nodes being, you, you could play it either way, but effectively in this 150 angels, the vast majority of them are, are within two degrees of separation from each other. I've invested in company X with person B, who's invested in company Y with person 150 on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a very, whether or not they know it, it's a very kind of interconnected uh, network with a few exceptions. So obviously like the golden triangle with Cambridge, Oxford and London investors are really close. <laughs> you, know, mm-hmm. they, you could say most more than likely less than two degrees of separation. Yeah. And then you go out more into the regions and you have some really strong investors in the regions who may have done one deal with someone in that London Triangle, uh, but they've also done deals with other people in, in the regions. So there is a, a concentration. Yeah, I know the Scottish community is quite tightly connected. When it comes to these angels themselves, how well diversified are their own portfolios? Because this is this idea of sort of skill versus luck. Mm-hmm. And I suspect you probably need both. Yeah. So when we were um, putting together our group of super angels, if you will, we were looking for people who had done at a minimum one new investment per year. But what we were finding was that most people were doing two to three per year for the last mm-hmm. you know, five or more years. So you have to have been in the market investing in new companies for at least five years to kind of qualify at the, at the minimum. Mm-hmm. And they also had to have portfolios of uh, 100K or more. So it wasn't people putting in too small of amounts and kind of taking too many small punts. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the the smallest portfolio of someone that meets our super angel criteria would have been 100K, minimum five investments and solid returns over those investments. But more than likely, people have at least 10. And at the upper end, uh, there are people that have close to kind of 100 um, in their portfolio. Presumably, this runs into the risk that you sort of the reversing in a sense the, the thing you came in at the start, where if someone's got a hundred investments and and they've got a good return, there's probably a fair amount of skill in there. If you've got someone who's made five investments, is it not that luck could as dominated as much uh, as yeah. a skill there? Yeah, so so that's a great question. And and that was something that was at the back of our minds um, while we were doing this. So when we were looking at the portfolios, we were looking for and ranking people on, okay, did they just get lucky once and everything else went bust? Or were they in a couple of things that were showing strong signs of growth? So it was kind of looking for, you know, I'd rather have someone that is in a portfolio of five where three of them 
are uh, sitting at five to 10x valuation increase um, versus one person who's got one that hit a, a 40x return and the rest have gone bust. Because for us, you could argue, okay, that person shoots for for home runs. You know, they go mm-hmm. at the riskiest thing and you know more will go bust. But there's a chance that we might miss co-investing with them in that one deal because for whatever reason, we didn't get to it quick enough or it was super oversubscribed and they only wanted index ventures you know, to invest in it. And then we would miss out on that one super, super returner. So we, we looked for people that had more consistent growth in the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, they all have losses in their portfolio, by the way. So they're not, they don't have superpowers and all of their companies <laughs> manage to keep going. Like they, they, they all have losses and I don't know the percentage of everyone's, you know, if I averaged it, but I would say most, it's like a third of their portfolio has probably gone bust, mm-hmm. <laughs> not most. So, so good, a good number have solid losses, but they also have solid returns in, in multiple companies. Yeah, I would have thought that the lack of losses might be as much of a concern in the sense that either illustrates risk or they're just not really following through with companies that don't perform well, which probably should have gone bust or whatever. Yeah, they might be propping them up with capital later on, which brings us to another mm-hmm. point about this fund. Like we, We've modeled it very much on first-time investments into companies with very few exceptions. So if you look at the vast majority of these super angels portfolios, and if you had run a simulation on it where you did a fixed check into all of their companies first time, as opposed to variable, the majority of them, the vast majority would would get better returns. Then if you ran a simulation on doing fixed check follow versus no follow with they followed, and instead of following, just don't, (laughs) the, the, the weighted returns would be higher for the no follow i.e., you know, as a percentage of investment, they would have got a higher return than when they were following on, which kind of led us to this conclusion of most of the angels, for whatever reason, you know, they're bought on a company or they feel connected and they keep giving them money. It it hinders their ability to make good decisions because they're already invested in it. And they would have been better not making that follow-on investment for most of them. So so yeah, we we modeled it on that one time come in when the angels are coming in for that first time and don't follow uh, for that reason. Yeah, that's quite interesting in a way because it kind of goes against a lot of perceived market wisdom where certainly amongst professional investors, the idea of being to follow your money, preserve your ownership in the company are all very valued things. Yeah, and some get it right. (laughs) Some (laughs) back the companies that with that additional capital hit an even higher return. It's it's not about backing companies and then them going bust because they back them. It's the return that they get from that second investment in most companies is a lot lower than what they would have gotten had they, say, invested in one new company as opposed to following. So we're looking at it as the amount returning as opposed to did this company then go bust after they... Um, invested a second time. Okay. So in a way, does the follow-on, the nature of follow-on perhaps then work against it in, to, in that respect, in that if I'm in doing the right process to invest in a follow-on, then I'm investing in a company that has hopefully made progress, achieved its benchmarks, KBIs, whatever, and a year, 18 months, it's 
basically a better company has shown sign of progress. It's less risky, hopefully. And if it's less risky, I should actually expect a lower return. But on a risk-adjusted basis, it might still be a good investment. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't say whether or not it would be a good investment or not. But from a return multiple that you're getting at that stage versus doing one more earlier stage investment, the risk adjustment isn't enough to justify doing that later stage. I generally, mm -hmm. when an angel comes in, there's very little in the company. And even at that next mm -hmm. stage of investment, it's still super risky. But mm -hmm. it seems to be that the um, valuation and potential return on that has over-adjusted for the level of risk. So you're still taking on a huge amount of risk, but your potential return from that later stage, because the valuation has gone from 1 million pre-money to mm -hmm. say 6 million pre-money, has meant that you won't get a, a strong enough to re return on that follow-on to justify the risk at that stage. Okay, that's... That's interesting. That's very interesting. This, this is, and by the way, this is all like market level. So yeah. clearly there are opportunities where it's still a great investment to, to follow on. But looking at the aggregated market data and how we've positioned this fund, uh, following on doesn't make uh, financial sense. Yeah, because there's an interesting question for an angel in that an angel approach is conceptually different from yours in that they are investing for financial reasons, but they're also investing because they will be involved to a greater or lesser extent, and they believe that their involvement can help or make a difference. So yeah. from the, their perspective, actually going for, for 100 investments might be challenging because you don't have time to support 100 investments. True. And, and you have to look at the reason that angels become angels. <laughs> you know, they're... There is a financial element, as you said, but there's also often a, a giving back perspective in the sense of mentoring the next generation, you know, helping with innovation. And, and for some, it's kind of living vicariously through the companies they invest. Mm -hmm. So you get a lot of, well, you get a mix of, of types of angels, but you, get, you see it more in city professionals where they may never have had the chance or we're willing to take the risk of being an entrepreneur themselves, mm -hmm. but in many ways they can invest in the company and kind of get a sense for that. You know, they can join the board, they can feel the, the risky side of it, but also, you know, the thrill of building up a company, still having their cushy city job <laughs> that, um, yeah. allows them to be an angel investor, but they, they can experience what it's like to be an entrepreneur through their angel investments. Yes. I've heard the circumstances where that's worked well and the circumstances where it hasn't worked out very well because uh, a lot of companies want angels to bring business experience. And while these sort of city professionals may be you know very good at their jobs in, in, in the context of big investment bank, whatever, they don't necessarily bring the skills to support a small company. Yeah. And, I mean, unless it is, you know, say it's a, a financial tech company and you've got someone from the financial industry coming on board and bringing that sector experience, that works well. But you're absolutely right. Like if you think, okay, I'm investment banker and I'm going to jump a, into a pharma <laughs> <laughs> you know, angel investment opportunity and help them grow, you're probably misguided because what they need is you know, someone that's got a different background. So yeah, there's, there's probably some misalignments out there. And I guess that's more on the entrepreneurs to ensure they're building a board that brings the skill set that they need to grow the business. Yeah, I, I think it's an underappreciated 
element for companies in terms of it's very easy for them to get the perspective oh i've i've got money great i finally found someone who's going to invest whereas they need to be selecting the right investor yeah it's i mean both on the investor side where you know it's a long-term relationship but particularly when it comes to um, the board and non-execs, you don't want to bring people on just because they've got money. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they, they'll probably create problems. You want to bring people on that have experience building a business. You know, so if you can get someone that's a successful entrepreneur, great. You know, even more so if they're within your rough sector of operation, but also people who, you know, for us, our, our chairman is um, Tim Bellis, you know, who is ex-Herbert Smith Law on the financial side of things, mergers and acquisitions and all of that. Mm-hmm. And having someone like that on our board where, you know, if there's a, a legal issue that comes up or you're with us or a company or whatever, you can just ask him and he's got that wealth of experience. One, it saves us a lot of cash. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, we, we do have lawyers, but we can talk to him first about what he's thinking. But two, you know, just guidance on things like, how should we structure this business? Should it be a holding co or not a holding co? And how does that affect us later on if someone wants to acquire us or someone wants to do this or that? It, it just makes it easier for us, really. You know, and we've got Jonathan Milner on our board, who's a very successful entrepreneur himself, building up Abcam, but also a very successful angel investor. So we can tap into him and talk about pretty much everything that we're doing and how we're building the business. And he, all of our board are generous with their time. You know, if we call them, the answer we used to go for a pint or a coffee <laughs> not so much anymore in the but, old uh, days the, the, yeah. <laughs> the the new bc the new before covid yes. <laughs> we've gone back to it so so yeah picking picking the right people getting the right people on your board who have the experience and who will also challenge you is super uh, important because you don't just want people on the board who agree with what you do you'll 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 get a lot more wrong that way <laughs> so Presumably, this is one of the challenges, your approach, in the sense that you obviously want angels who are probably going to be like that with their investing companies, where they're going to be supportive, going to be on boards, they're going to be contributing to success. But to what extent does your approach allow you to assess that properly? Or do you just have to accept that that's something you're going to not incorporate? Yeah, it's for this fund, it's not a factor i.e. the data that we've got on the angels supports that if the angel's going into a company and they're investing in their typical angel pattern, you know, X amount, rough valuation type of company for some of them, then that's good enough for us. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a mix of very involved angels through to angels who don't get involved at all that are more passive post-investment mm-hmm. um, within our group. And I'd like to say that the angels who are more involved are slightly more successful, but the data doesn't necessarily support that. Mm-hmm. You know, the angels who bring us into the deals who are less involved, there will be angels that they co-invest with who are more involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I couldn't say, yes, the ones that we know that are involved get better returns because it's not about the specific angels we go in with in this fund being involved. It's about having good angels involved who, or the right angels involved as well, giving that support, mentorship, and challenging the company. So long-winded way of saying, don't have the data for that. (laughs) No, no, but it's interesting because one of the things that I, I was intrigued about, you spoke to me, I think, around about the time this fund was being launched. 
And I was really fascinated. And one of the things I was really intrigued about was how this would be received in the market because you have an EIS market that is largely idiosyncratic. You have a lot of very talented people who are making investments in their own way and doing their own thing. And you've come in with essentially a quant approach, which is absolutely unique as far as I can tell. But I was just wondering in terms of where you've got advisors and investors who are looking at EIS funds thinking, well, I want to find this fund manager because I, I, I trust this perspective or their, their approach. And you're coming and saying, well, we're going to bypass that and do a quant approach. How has that been received in the market? <laughs> Hard to say. So, <laughs> you know, the whole of the EIS market was down, what was it, 60% during the last, last tax window, depending mm-hmm. which numbers you go on. We launched it in November of 2019. Mm-hmm. Between November and February, we had taken about four million into the fund. Mm-hmm. So, in what is typically quietish period, you know, March would have been, <laughs> or, or would typically see almost mm-hmm. doubling of that amount. Yeah, um, and that that doubling didn't happen, which you know the the whole market was kind of down. So, um, I think the initial reception was warmer than I thought it would be, but still skeptical because as a fund manager, this is a new fund. You know, we don't have a track record for the fund, mm-hmm. even though we have a track record for those that we co-invest with. Yeah. Over the last 12 months, we've done, well, not quite 12 months, but we've done 50 odd investments, just over 50 investments. Mm-hmm. So we'll start to see that track record coming in. And then we can kind of say, yes, the model is working and you know the, the growth is like this. But importantly, one of the things for us uh, with this fund beyond the data is making it more accessible to people. So when you look at the the average ticket size, uh, sorry, investment required to get into an EIS fund, you know the the average is twenty k ish. So park walks and MMCs and whoever twenty twenty plus thousand. And for us, having the pedigree with the platform and the technology that facilitated the platform and high volumes of investments we're able to manage that side of it quite easily. And therefore, we can have a much lower ticket to get into our fund. So it's 5,000 pounds as opposed mm-hmm. to 20. And, and obviously, that opens up EIS to, to a broader market. But it also allows advisors to say, look, like, say I've got a client um, has 30,000 that they're going to put into EIS this year. Well, I can't do two 20,000 funds because I don't have enough for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could do 20 into this and 10 into us or 25 into this and five into us, the access fund. And therefore I have two very distinct and diverse EIS strategies. I've got the more traditional one, which whichever they choose that will build a portfolio of eight to 10 slightly later stage companies. So probably the company's probably raising five or 6 million. They've been around a number of years. They're de-risked, if you will, although Again, I shouldn't say that, but you'd like to think de-risks because they've got more traction and later on. And then you've got this other strategy, which is building your portfolio of 50 much earlier stage companies, you know, companies raising 400K that might be their first round or might be their second, but very, very broad sector agnostic. Uh, our angels invest in you know, everything from life science and pharma through to traditional um, enterprise SaaS to fast-moving consumer goods. And we go with what the angels know and what they invest in. So that means that 
you're going to get 50 plus investments across 20 plus <laughs> industries. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is is diverse in many ways. You know, we, we do have a few smaller IFAs who are, have been very receptive to this model. We've got a few more of the larger ones who have sent us the, the DDQ, if you will, to, to fill in, who've kind of wanted to wait to see what it's done in the first year. But okay. I, I think there is an interest in having that diversification of option of funds and fund strategies. Yeah, it's quite interesting. We had Andy Davidson on the podcast back in October talking about similar things, about trying to get the industry accessible to a wider range of people. Because if, if you do get that spread of investments, then it does look like you, you, you'll get your prospects return will be good. You'll be more likely to hit the winner. And you know, I, I, know, I know my own work the advantage of venture capital, even in a quite a conservative portfolio, a little bit of venture capital can improve your risk return profile by a notable extent. And all these things suggest we should be doing more to make this accessible. How do you think the industry as a whole should make these things more accessible? Yeah, look, it's, um, I think part of it requires a, a technology shift. Us being a platform enabled that, but you do have a lot of more traditional funds that you know, outsource various parts of the business to so the nominee structure side of mm-hmm. things. And that implies cost. Obviously, uh, with those costs, you need people to write bigger checks to cover those costs. So adding someone into a, a, a costly system, if you will, that's only going to put a 5,000 check in, well, you're going to lose most of your margin because you've got to pay this, this, and that. You know, and, I, and to be fair, the only the only criticism I will have of the current EIS market is the fees involved. Those fees could kind of go away, and you could lower the minimum if you in-housed a lot of the activity, and if you shifted to to more technical approach to it. You know, everything we do from signing the subscription agreements into the fund to the EIS certificates is all done digitally, and is done in-house, and that mm-hmm. does strip out a lot of the cost. So when we when we looked at the market, your your typical EIS fund is probably only deploying around eighty five percent of the investment that they get from someone. The rest is being held for fees. And mm. I don't know if you have research that cor- corroborates that. I think ten percent retention up front is probably closer to the average. I mean, there are one or two in those figures you you speak about, but some of that comes out at the back end. Yeah. Okay. So so your EIS is only applies to that amount that gets deployed, right? And for us designing this fund, we wanted to make sure we could keep the cost low and deploy more. So we deploy almost 94%, I think it's 93 and a half, mm-hmm. um, goes out the door. So you're getting EIS on a bit more, mm-hmm. um, which is benefits the underlying investor. But but sorry, coming, coming back to your point, I, I think it is a shift to digitizing the process, to being able to operate more efficiently so that you can bring on these smaller investors. And just to add to that, like if you look at the correlation of the private markets uh, being the you know the index that we've created to the public markets over that same period of time, there's there is actually very little correlation between the two markets. You know, so they're not ebbing and flowing together, primarily because the reporting and the changes and valuations for the markets mm-hmm. take time because you know the exits take time and the up rounds take time. But that is a good thing. You've got something that that isn't correlated to 
everything else that you've invested yeah, in. Yeah, in the course of my work, I found some academic research on this, which suggests that the correlation between venture capital and listed markets is about 0.3. Um, yeah. And the suggestion was that venture capital, broadly speaking, lags quoted markets by a couple of years in terms of return profiles. That's um, roughly in line with what we found. I think the correlation, I'm forgetting it right now, but was a little bit higher than 0.3 for, for our own finding, but not much. We, we do have a white paper that we published on all the data that um, if anybody wants, you know, I'm happy to share with you. And mm -hmm. it's, it's actually available on the website. So, um, Well, if you send me the link, we'll post it in the show notes. Yeah, perfect. I'll, I, I will do that. So I'd like to move now to our standard questions. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so complete, <laughs> complete jump for you. Um, That's fine. So what was the most recent publicly announced investment that you made and why? Yeah. So I'll caveat that all of the investments that we make are because there's a strong angel involved mm -hmm. in it, the angel that, that meets our, our super angel criteria. Um, so the most recent public one that we kind of promoted was a company called Oxwash, which is uh, dry cleaning, but um, call it ethical and green dry cleaning. So, you know, zero, mm -hmm. zero carbon dry cleaning. And the reason that we kind of promoted that one was that there were some notable angels involved, in particular, Bizstone, who is the co-founder of Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, he, he does a fair few uh, angel investments, primarily in, I would say, the green space. But then the, the most recent one that we posted to our own website was a company called AppTap, which is again, a strong angel involved in that, but they do managing for utility bills and subscriptions. Mm -hmm. um, so you see all of your bills, you plug it into your, your bank account using open banking, so APIs. They pull out all of the bills, they look at what you're spending, they tell you when you're going above and under, and also then recommend who you might change to to, to save on a particular bill. So whether it be your water, electricity, car insurance, mm -hmm. whatever, they are showing you better offers. So trying to save you some cash while managing your expenditure. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, we've seen that the sort of to compare the markets and confused.com's have got a little bit of flack for not being as objective as people think they're, they're being. So uh, there's clearly space in that market. Yeah. I mean, you look at the way that um, they're compensated, it's for a referral fee effectively of selling a service. So clearly they want you to be happy. So whenever they can, they'll show you a better deal, but they might show you a better deal that they get paid more for than a better deal that would save you even more. Mm -hmm. um, not saying that that happens or not, <laughs> but uh, that is what is implied by mm -hmm. what's out there in the market right now. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. Yeah. I mean, go, going back to the start of Syndicate Room, you know, we've obviously pivoted away from the platform. I wouldn't say that the platform was a failure, but in our drive to push people to diversify and create portfolios, we just struggled with certain people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think the learning from that, which led to to this fund, part, or partially led to it, was just you know it's, it's in our human nature to to think that we can beat a market, or you know to think that we're slightly smarter or know something that somebody else doesn't know. Um, you see it in public markets and in and, and angel investing and. No matter how hard we tried to beat the drum of diversify your portfolio, it, it didn't work. And so mm -hmm. it worked with some people, but 
but not everyone. And and so the lesson there was effectively, look, if we're serious about wanting people to have access to this asset class and the potential for good returns, in order to have the potential for good returns, we have to shut down the platform and focus on this fund because we'll always be tainted with someone who did one investment into a company that went bust and then may or may not hold a grudge against us because that one failed. And I'm not going to say, oh, I couldn't live with myself because of that, <laughs> but it, it definitely like it definitely weighed on us. Like if there's an option to give them more of an opportunity to get a, a, a good return from this, then we should be only going with that option. Yes, sadly, overconfidence is a well-known cognitive bias, but we yeah. can't get away from our cognitive biases, unfortunately. No, no. Hey, Hope. So we just, I don't, I don't want to liken it to gambling, but you know, it, people worry about gambling and they worry about all these sites that make it too easy to put money in. Well, just shut them down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Rob Murray Brown, I, who you mentioned earlier, he sort of thinks there are some people in the crowdfunding platforms where it is effectively gambling for them, where they're just sort of saying, well, I'm just going to stick 50 quid or 100 quid. And, and for them, it's not a huge amount of money. And it's the thrill of gambling, not not doing it for investment purposes. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't say that I definitely agree with that, but there are people. Who... Not everybody. <laughs> I think there's a small number of people, hopefully yeah. a small number, who, who, who are there for the thrill rather than the investment. Yeah. The, the difference being, though, that you know, if you put money on a horse or I don't know, a football match, you'll find out pretty quickly if it returns. For this, it's like, <laughs> even if you pick the right company, you know, you're waiting seven years, 10 years, yeah. and then you put in 50 quid and, okay, you great, you got a 4x return in 10 years time, here's 200 back. <laughs> great, but was it worth the 10-year wait? Like, It's not to put the industry down. I definitely think there's a need for it and and getting capital to early stage companies. Mm. I just think there's a better way of doing it and hence hence the fund and all we've done for it. So the industry that we work on is far from perfect. How would you like to change it? Um, transparency is, I think, improving, but one of the bits of research we were um, doing when we were taking apart the market was trying to find out how other funds have performed. And it's really difficult. <laughs> like, mm. yeah, with individual investors, you get names and you can link names to each other and build someone's portfolio that way and see how they've done. With a fund, often what happens is because the nominee is outsourced, they've made this investment with a nominee called Apollo 11. And this investment's done with Saturn 13. And that one's done with nominee John 15. <laughs> and like, mm -hmm. you can't really link things together. And then you go to the website and obviously they're, they talk about the successes and don't always talk about the failures in the portfolio and the, the, the returns then become kind of obscured. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. and, and I wish that the industry was just more transparent about successes and failures. Yeah, I, I was just looking at uh, a VCT manager the other day who had 13 successful exits over the last five years but somehow their multiples don't include any failures that they've had in that time. Yeah, it's it's a shame, right? Like it actually casts a shadow on all of the industry when you mm -hmm. when you get people like that. And for us, you know, every company that we invest in goes onto the site, so it's it becomes public um, mm -hmm. as soon as the investment closes. 
So over time, anybody will be able to go back and, and they can do it as well with the old funds and the platform. They can see what we've invested in, whether or not it's still trading or not gone into liquidation or not, and whether or not it's, it's had an exit. And it's like, that's the type of transparency that I wish <laughs> everyone was into doing. And I know, yeah, we, Rob talked about that a lot, I think, on over-marketing the one or two success stories <laughs> that mm-hmm. happened and not talking about the countless failures. And It's something, I, as you say, I think it is improving. I think I see more of the fund managers being more transparent. And, and I think some of it that is that a lot of them are, are now getting to the stage where they've They've, they've actually got something of a track record. I think if you go back two or three years, there was only a handful of people who'd had any exits. But as that gets better, I think you're getting more people more willing to talk about the sort of whole track record. And I think that's partially because if you've got two or three successful exits, you can sort of live with saying, well, actually, we've got a couple of failures on the side as well. Yeah. And I mean, look, we were earlier on, we were probably guilty of that. I think the first year we were talking about how the amount of total being raised by the companies of the rounds we were involved with, like that was our big stat. Like Mm -hmm. we've been involved in 15 million of fundraise. And then you look at it and it's legal to say that legal, not illegal, you know, because we had the caveat of like, this was the rounds we were involved with, but it's slightly misleading because we maybe were a couple million of that. And you know, we, we took that stance after the first year of like, okay, well, we've got to be more transparent and upfront about we're, this is all, the whole of the rounds. This is our participation in it. These are the companies we do invest in. These are the failures. The first failure that we had on the platform, we, we did a press release about. <laughs> like, <laughs> seems rather odd, but um, it was a company called Soshi Games. And, and I remember it. And when they gave us the notice of liquidation, we all sat there going, oh, no. Um, and then I can't remember who it was, but someone's like, you know what, we're going to publish this and we're going to interview the founder and we're going to talk about what happened and the lessons learned. And uh, you know, it turned out to be kind of a, a real positive in the sense of being open and transparent about mm-hmm. what was going on. And I remember interviewing the founder and it was slightly awkward, like, hey, you just failed. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> how do you feel? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> kind of rubbish. <laughs> yeah, give me the Prozac. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, it ended up coming across all right, but those first few questions were slightly awkward. <laughs> I, I can uh, only imagine, yes. And it, you know what, the benefit, though, to him as well was him being honest with the with the failure and, and what happened mm. with it. He ended up getting a, a good a good job off the back of it. He was worried that there would be a stigma like, oh, he's a failed entrepreneur. But he got he got a good job working with an accelerator program and being able to share his learnings with that next group. So it was a positive for everyone. I, I think there's a lot of US VCC, VCs talk about how when companies fail, they really appreciate the people who fail properly and do it properly and contact and, and even hand back a little bit of cash if there's some left or whatever. And they're the people who next time they come around, they'll say, well, actually, I'm going to fund you again. It's, it's the same here. And you speak to the angels and I was having a chat and he won't mind me saying this with Simon Thorpe, who's uh, mm-hmm. chair of the Cambridge Angels right now. And he had a company, uh, you know, he's got a really solid portfolio and he had two failures in the last year or something like that. Both of them have, the founders have tried to go on to do something else and, and both have come back to him for money. He was like, one of them, like, you know, the failure process was 
basically they gave me nothing and said nothing. It was just like, yep, we're winding it down. It was like, okay, thank you. I'm not going to back you again. The other one was very open and talked about it and talked about what went wrong, came back 12 months later, 18 months later, whatever it was. And, you know, was probably thinking Simon wouldn't invest, but he was like, no, like I will invest because I believe in you and the product. You've been open along the way, you know, what went wrong and what you need to do to improve it. So, so yes, I'll back you again. And failing well, <laughs> if, if that's the phrase is, is definitely um, needed <laughs> from the entrepreneur side. I had a little online business that I was sort of selling stuff for people. And uh, I, when I wound it up, people were, the people who came back to and said, I'm winding this up, by the way, here's the final payment. They were kind of shocked that I was actually saying all this stuff and here's the, the money that's left or whatever. It's, it, it's obviously not common enough. No, I, I think, again, the entrepreneurs are worried about stigma and failure. Um, whereas in the US, it's becoming better here, but in the US, like, it's almost a badge of honor, like, I failed, mm -hmm. I tried, and I learned. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Unfortunately, most don't actually learn. <laughs> I was reading, I was reading, there's an yeah. article on um, Harvard Business Review about failure and looking at the success rates of first-time companies. So something like 22% hmm. end up being successful, i.e. business is sustaining, not necessarily exit, but at least sustaining 10 years mm -hmm. later. Second-time founders who failed, roughly the success rate, same as first-time failures, just a little bit higher, like 22.2%. Mm -hmm. Successful second-time founders, 29% successful. So it's like that whole thought of fail fast and learn from it, unfortunately doesn't apply because most don't end up learning from it they blame the environment the timing mm -hmm. the you know mm -hmm. their co-founder <laughs> yeah yeah it's unfortunate so lockdown has done wonders for my reading um <laughs> i did i read over 50 books last year wow so have you got anything that you would recommend to people to read yes i I probably read, actually, I probably read 30 books. So not far off you, but um, lockdown has been good for me as well. And I mix mine up between kind of business focused and call them pleasure books, if you will. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a slight sci-fi geek. <laughs> so I've always got one business book and one sci-fi book. On, on the business side, uh, I read a book at the start of lockdown called Atomic Habits, which is about habit building and how we build habits and how to build habits. And to be honest, it's it's been, I hate to say the word transformational, but it really has. And, and kind of the, the key takeaway from it was how you can break a habit down into these quote unquote atomic habits, mm -hmm. because we, we approach things like, oh, I want to start working out. So you think that the habit is working out, but actually the habit is broken down to, okay, prepare to work out, you know, put on your gym clothes. Okay. Go to the gym. Okay. Pick up that first set of weights. Okay. Do the next, next one. And you can even break it down further than that. But most people get put off when they have or try and create a habit that's too chunky. Mm -hmm. So Atomic Habits being breaking it down is like, it's going to sound silly, but I applied it to flossing my teeth because <laughs> <laughs> I would floss maybe once a month. Okay. I know I should have done it more, right? But mm -hmm. um, anyways, it was like, okay, so how am I going to floss my teeth? Okay. I need to think about flossing when I'm about to brush my teeth. Okay, I need to make sure that my floss is actually easily accessible as opposed to at the back of a cabinet, mm -hmm. you know, right there where I'm going to grab it. Okay, first day, just pick it up. I don't necessarily have to floss, but just pick up the box of floss. 
day two, I pick up the blocks. I'm like, well, I'm picking up my box of floss. I might as well just take some floss out. <laughs> you know, <And> like <laughs> that, that kind of mentality, you think it sounds so silly, but I floss my teeth now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing about it, but it's, you know, I'm in my late thirties and I'm, <laughs> it's taken me this long <laughs> to build such a simple habit, but I do it. So, uh, and I've applied that to more, more productive things than the flossing, but, um, it was the first example that came to mind. Yes, excellent. No, I, 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 I was reading something in the year about new resolutions along similar lines, and somebody said their target is to do a minute of exercise every day. Yep. And the idea is something along the lines of what you're saying, is the hardest thing is to start. And if you just do a minute and stop, then you've achieved your target. So you, feel, you don't feel like a failure, which doesn't put you off repeating it. Yeah. You're, you're layering the habit, if you will. You're breaking it down into the, the atomic parts and then layering on top of it. So, so yeah, that was, that was a really good book. Do you want another one? or <laughs> If you want to give us another one. I am a, a big Clayton Christensen fan. And so I finally got around to reading The Innovator's Dilemma. Um, I had read Competing Against Luck before, which is about jobs to be done. And it's fantastic for anyone wanting to start a business or creating a product. The whole jobs to be done framework is great, but I had never read his his earlier work in, in The Innovator's Dilemma, and I, I read that, and it really is a good read. All of his books are excellent. So yeah, I've p- picked them up. <laughs> okay. I've only read The Innovator's Dilemma, so maybe I'll have to get on to some of the later ones as well. Yeah. And I mean, his he, he sadly, he passed away last year. The last book that he put out was kind of, um, how do you measure measure your life, basically taking all that he had learned of business and how he's kind of come to terms with the end of his life and figuring out whether or not he was successful or not. <laughs> and obviously what is success. So it's it's a um, it's, it's a really good book. It's kind of a combination of his other books, but then just applying it to everyday life as opposed to business. So yeah, read that one as well or listen to it. I've started podcasts and uh, not podcasts, audio books. I don't know if if you've done that, but more on the sci-fi listening than the actual <laughs> business mm-hmm. books. But um, no, I'm more a podcast listener and and a book reader. Well, the business books I like to read because I mark them up and take notes. But there are a few things like biographies and and these sci-fi books where actually listening to them is slightly more enjoyable. Than it's something that you can do kind of when you're winding down at night. You don't want to have to try and memorize some theory or formula. So, <laughs> all right. Let's, you know, I, I listened to um, Sir Alex Ferguson's biography, which was awesome. I'm obviously a football fan, so that was great. I'm not sure I would have read that or had time to read it. So it was just kind of a couple chapters as I was cooling down. What do you wish you knew when you started Syndicate Room that you know now? Wow. So that's an interesting question because I, you know, it's, it's been a journey and like all the things that we've done had evolved into better things. I think if I had known that we should have gone down the path of a fund earlier on instead of the platform, there's probably a ton of other things that I wouldn't have learned that would have got us to this position. So I'll generalize in that the amount of time that it would take to get to where we are now would be you know doubled as long as as I thought. And knowing that, just so that my call it my mental health, my mental state was more <laughs> prepared for how long it would be, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to getting to kind of year three and four and having a spell of, of frustration that it wasn't going as fast as we were. Like, uh, not, you know, I'm not, 
I didn't break down or anything like that, but I definitely felt burnout because I was going so hard so quickly and trying to force things that needed mm-hmm. to take time. So just a better understanding of how long it would take to actually start to see proper traction in the industry that we're in. Yeah, I think that's a common issue with anybody who starts a company where it just takes longer than you think. Yeah. Okay, so if anyone wants to find out more what you do, more about what you're doing at Syndicate Room, where should they go? Uh, go to the website, so www.syndicateroom.com. Um, anyone who's interested in in the fund and, and how it works, like I'm, I'm happy to have a conversation. My email, I don't mind sharing that, is just tom, T-O-M, at syndicateroom.com. Please don't spam me. <laughs> if you are genuinely interested in, in having a chat, then you know, by all means, uh, shoot me an email. We'll find a time to talk and, and we can go from there. Excellent. So thank you very much for your time today, Tom. That's been a really interesting discussion. Yeah, it's been a pleasure and uh, hopefully you found it useful. So thank you. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.